Don't be good. For goodness sake. Whoa. Somebody's we coming. We have to get out of here. We've got Somebody's to find a judge or something. Hey, wait a minute. Welcome to the world's premier Black Crows podcast. State of America. Hosted by two of the band's most dedicated fans, David Hudson and Ian Rice. And now, let's get the show on the road. All right, everyone, welcome back to the State of America podcast. This is a uh, this is a big week for us, and we're we're really excited that uh, that all of you guys are listening to us and uh, chose to uh, download the podcast this week. Ian, uh, just another normal week, huh? Oh yeah, nothing major, you know, just uh, talking with your heroes. No, no big thing, right? Not at all, man. Not at all. So we're recording this on Sunday night. Uh, I believe it's November the tenth, and this will be released Monday morning, um, no- November the eleventh. And all signs point to tomorrow. Today, if you're listening on uh, the day that it releases, is going to be a big day in Black Crow's history. We suspect that there's going to be some formal announcement of a tour uh, today. If you uh, haven't seen and have been living under a rock. You know, for a couple of weeks now, those pictures of the crows, the two crows with like the eyes crossed out, have been popping up all over the country. Well, they popped up over the weekend with some actual tour dates and a little bit of information saying that the band will be playing Shake Your Money Maker in its entirety, plus uh, some other hits. So we still don't know who's in the band. We don't know if that's going to be at every show, if that's just for select shows. Don't know. But hopefully... Right after you listen to us, that announcement will be out. So, Ian, it's, I know it's created a lot of controversy, but uh, here we are. It's impending. It's the worst kept secret in the music business. Now that we have a few more details, what are your honest thoughts? Well, I mean, it's not some of the hits, man. It's all the hits. Okay. All the hits. But, <laughs> no, I mean, actually, that um, that and I believe it was Relics Magazine that first put it up. That poster uh, is announcing. Uh, a date in New Jersey and a date at Jones Beach here uh, where I am uh, in New York. And that poster was in Penn Station, which for, for those who don't know, is like, you know, the largest uh, train hub station in uh, in New York City. So it's a pretty big deal. Um, there's a, I'll be honest with you, because I'm all over, you know, a lot of these uh, Facebook groups and, and I, you know, in the past on message boards and things. So I know a lot of a lot of the longtime fans. Um and I know a lot of those fans aren't happy about it um, because of what we do here and, and, and the mindset we try to keep. I've, I've stayed out of those discussions, really. I don't know about you, but, um, you know, I, until I know a little bit more myself, I mean, I'm, I'm interested in going because I'd like to see what it's all about. I like to make up my own mind on things. I'm sure you're the same way, David. Yeah, I will. Like I said, I will go see them. I'll probably honestly go see them multiple times. I love hearing Chris Robinson sing those songs. Um, and so, um, I, I'm going to go, do I wish it was the classic lineup? Of course. Uh, is it going to be? No, it's not. And you'll, you'll hear in our interview that it's, it's not going to be, um, yes. <laughs> I don't think there's, there's any ambiguity in that. I'm going to go. And you know, there's a lot of songs off shake your money maker. I don't think I've ever seen played live. I don't think I've ever seen stare at cold live. I don't think I've ever seen seeing things live. I know for sure. I haven't seen strut and blues live. So I'm going to go um, and, and have fun. And when they're playing, I'm, I'm going to have a good time. And if people don't want to go, 
I totally understand that. Uh, totally cool. Uh, everybody needs to make up their own mind. I don't think this tour is aimed at people like you and me, though. I think it's aimed at the people that think they just put out two albums and quit. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely trying to reach for uh, you know an audience that hasn't followed them for as long as they have. You know, and but if you think about you know any longtime touring bands, a lot of them attract those people. You know, people hear these songs on uh, you know a lot of people believe it or not, still listen to FM radio and, you know, they still hear these songs played. And unfortunately FM radio, um, plays predominantly songs off shake your moneymaker and a couple off of, uh, Southern harmony. Maybe if you're lucky, some stuff off of Morica, but it doesn't go beyond that. So, you know, a lot of people, though, that's what they're familiar with. And, you know, a summer shed tour more than any other kind of tour attracts those audiences as people that want to sit outside and the summer breeze and relax and listen to some songs they know. You know, it's it's not necessarily, you know, diehard music people that 100% make up those crowds. Based on the size of the venues that are being advertised, it's going to have to be some type of package deal. Uh, you know, I, I would tend to think so. I mean, I, I totally get why people uh, are upset about this. I think what's working against the band right now, or the Robinson Brothers right now, um is the fact that they're not saying anything. I think people would feel a little differently if they had some more information. You know what I mean? Who knows? That may be a media blitz starting tomorrow. We don't know. Or starting yeah. today. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I mean, that's absolutely true, too. Uh, if they want to start that media blitz on this podcast, they're both more than welcome to. Yeah. I know. Let's throw that out there. You know, swing for the trees, you know? Yeah. So, all right. So that's kind of where we are with the band. Well, First of all, we want to say thank you to everybody that helped us uh, get this interview this week with Steve Gorman. If you remember about a month or two ago, uh, we asked you to reach out to Steve on social media with like hashtag get Steve on Amorica and stuff like that on his Facebook page. And he contacted us probably about two months ago and said, yeah, I'll do it. Uh, let me get through October and, and I'll hit you back up. And last Thursday, I think he sent me a message and said, hey, you still want to do this? I'm like, of course. So, um, it happened, <laughs> it happened, uh, yesterday. And, uh, so first of all, thank you to everybody that helped make it happen because I don't know if we would have gotten him this early without your help. Right, Ian? Absolutely. I mean, uh, to everybody that, you know, pitched in in some way or, or tried to do their part to, to make this happen. Um, you know, I personally can't thank you enough. And, uh, you know, I know David feels the same way, obviously. Um, you guys are great. We, this interview was was for you guys as much as it was for us. You know, I think it's uh, a little bit more unique than maybe some of the other interviews that he's been doing. So, you know, thanks, guys. Yeah, there's a few quotes he's going to have in this that I think are going to pop up on message boards today. Um, so, <laughs> all right. So, a little bit about the interview first. Um, we there were no parameters on it. We could ask whatever we wanted to. Um, Ian and I tried to. We worked on this and worked on the flow of it, and we tried to kind of hit on every period of the band with uh, a couple of questions that we think a lot of you uh, wanted to hear. Now, I will say this. Did we get everything? No. We could talk to him for four or five hours and not get everything. So keep that in mind. Also keep in mind that when, when you're doing an interview like this, sometimes the interview takes on a life of itself, and the person you're interviewing goes longer than you would think or shorter, or they veer into a, a different territory, which requires you to ask some follow-up questions. 
so we didn't get it. We didn't get all of our questions answered because we couldn't get to them in the amount of time that we had. We didn't know how much time we were going to have until we got Steve on there, and he was. Um, well, no, it's before we started recording. He's like, let's just go and we'll just see how it goes. So, you know, do we get everything? No. Do we get a lot of stuff? Yes. We got a lot of answers to a lot of things. I think that some of you want to hear, but, uh, Ian, why don't you tell them of the impending disaster we had upon us with less than a minute before <laughs> we were supposed to call Steve? Yeah. So, I mean, you know, obviously, uh, David and myself are, uh, you know, we got day jobs. So, uh, you know, last minute, uh, that we set up the time to do it, whatever, we basically resigned ourselves to the fact that whatever time Steve said he was ready to go, we were going to be ready to go. So in this particular instance, I had to, uh, I had to do this from a, a back office at my, uh, at my job. So, uh, you know, about an hour beforehand, I brought all my gear, I set everything up, everything's working. You know, I, I, I said, Oh, great. Everything's perfect. This will be fine. I come back, go to set up. It's three minutes to go. And, uh, I lose every internet connection and, uh, I go from, this is going to be cool to, uh, I'm in a full on panic right now. So, <laughs> um, so that's why when you're listening to this interview, if I sound any different, it's because I ended up having to do it through my iPhone, you know, through the Skype app. So my, I might, my, my voice might sound different than normal. Yeah. We, um, we jinxed ourselves the night before because we were talking about it. And sometimes when we do this, Ian has an issue with his connection, and we have to restart uh, the S- Skype call. And so I was telling, he was telling me that where he was going to be is when we plug it into Ethernet from the wall, and shouldn't be a problem. And I was talking about how I live in a new neighborhood that was built with uh, fiber, and so uh, I get like a gigabyte a second, and the hub is actually in my front yard, so I probably have the fastest, just about the fastest internet that you can have. And when I went to call him three or four minutes beforehand, it said my signal was too weak, which I've never, <laughs> never gotten that. And I went into panic mode and rebooted everything, and we got it all up. And with probably about 30 seconds to spare, Ian uh, Ian miraculously came online, and everything went off without a hitch. Yeah, and, uh, you know, but we, I guess we definitely did uh, kind of put the horns on it by being so confident the night before about our internet connections. But, you know, that being said, everything was fine. The only at once or twice because of where I work and there's a lot of background noise. I had a I had a mute out, you know, my phone while Steve was talking. But uh, I mean, you know, we we went into it and, uh, you know, initially we kind of asked Steve for about 20 minutes and he said, you know, well, well, let's just go. And, you know, it ended up being, you know, what it is, which is, you know, just under an hour. He couldn't have been more gracious to us. He he couldn't have been more willing to to answer our questions and, and talk. And, you know, he's, he was a great guy. And I'm not saying that, uh, you know, out of any other reason than it's the absolute truth. He was a, a true gentleman and really, really did us a solid. As nice as could be actually stayed on the line with us for about 10 or 15 minutes after the, um, the interview and talked to us just, uh, really nice. And you'll hear at the end, he, he had some nice things to say about, uh, there being a black crows podcast, which honestly, really meant the world to me and, and to Ian. All right. So we're going to have a two cool contests this week. All right. <clears throat> so we have one signed Steve Gorman book, one unsigned Steve Gorman book. We want to give those away. So you're allowed to enter both. You obviously won't win both, but you're allowed to enter both contests. And uh, we're not going to say which uh, person gets um, which book. We're just going to randomly select that um, contest winner and you'll either get a signed version or just a regular version. 
So the first contest, go to Apple Podcasts, leave us a five-star rating, and write us a review. Screenshot that review, post it on our Facebook page. That's all you got to do. And you, you'll be eligible to win one of the books. The other contest is either screenshot your phone listening to the podcast or take a selfie of you listening to the podcast and go to Instagram, follow us on Instagram, State of America Podcast, post that picture, tag us and tag Steve Gorman. I think it's Steve underscore Gorman underscore. And just say, you know, enjoy listening to this podcast or thank you for coming on stage from work or whatever. And you'll be eligible to win one of the other books. So two good contests, two ways you can win and you can enter both. Yeah, I've been excited about this one. I got the um, the first book signing uh, he did in uh, New Jersey. Uh, they allowed you to order additional books uh, signed online. So I made sure I ordered one of those for my uh, our fine friends here. And uh, I've been waiting to give this thing away. So please participate. Uh, and a signed book could be in your future. All right, everybody. You helped us get this interview. I didn't think I would ever say these words. But uh, thank you for uh, helping us uh, get it. We hope you enjoy it. And here's Steve Gorman. It is a, a real honor today to uh, to have the drummer for Trigger Hippie, the author of Hard to Handle, and the host of Steve Gorman Rocks, and our favorite drummer from our favorite band. It is a great honor to welcome Steve Gorman to our podcast. Oh man! See, now, you know, now you've ruined it. Now, now I feel like I have to be impressive or something. <laughs> uh, St- Steve, you just be you, buddy. I'll be okay. <laughs> well, listen, um, before we get into, you know, obviously the book and, and the Black Crows and everything, you have put together a stellar band in Trigger Hippie, and this album has just blown me away. I know Ian is real big on it. How happy are you to have this band out? And it, have been, it seems to me like it's no longer kind of like a side project. It's a, it's a band going forward. Um, well... I'm I'm very happy to have it out, uh, and I'm and that's exactly what I mean. I mean, I hope what you just said turns out to be true because that's entirely our intent. Um, uh, I you know I've always wanted Trigger Hippie to become my full time 
band, um, knowing full well that it, it takes a long time for that to happen if you're going to do it correctly. And, you know, I'm thrilled. We've been playing shows the last week and we've got some more shows through uh, through next weekend and they're going great. The band is is, uh, you know, I think I think we're we're hitting all the marks we would hope to be hitting and, and even going past them. So, um, yeah, I'm thrilled. I, I couldn't be happier with what the band sounds like right now. And I, I love the record. And it was, you know, it was a it was a long time coming and it turned out to be the perfect amount of time because where it ended was was where we wanted to be. The first record and that first incarnation of the band, did that start out intending to be kind of like a one-off kind of thing? Or were you... We, we talked about it being more than that, but we never really did anything about it. It was, uh, you know, Nick Govrick and I have had a, a bit, had a vision for what we wanted the band to be for, for years and years. And the first band, and I say this happily and with appreciation fell together like a nice accident. I mean, there was no, you know, I, I called Joan and just asked if she wanted to, you know, come down and jam and do something. And then I, the truth is I'm trying to remember who I didn't know Jackie green till the first time he walked into a room and jammed with us. And I think maybe we were still playing with oddly. And he had asked him, the point is that just sort of fell together as what trigger hippie up to that point had pretty much been, which was me and Nick and whoever else was available. You know what I mean? It was always just a jam and a hang and Nick had songs and he wanted to flesh them out with a band. But all that to say, when Tom Bukovac started playing with us, who's a, a, a friend of mine and a, my favorite guitarist on earth you know he's just such an amazing musician and a hilarious guy he's just one of the best hangs in the world when he stepped in then all of a sudden it just took on this thing of oh shit this is like a band let's go make a record you know and it's as simple as he said i got a studio in my house and next thing you know we're making a record so it fell together pretty haphazardly but it was all good but once we started touring it was pretty clear that wasn't going to be a long-term uh sustainable band it just didn't have that feel it felt like we're here for fun and we'll do this when we can and that was cool and i enjoyed that but when when the summer of 15 came and we finished our dates nick and i very much said okay well this has been cool but i i if i'm gonna put time and energy into something i want it to be more than that because you know you can say it's a happenstance and it all falls together, but there's still a lot of effort just to even go get 20 gigs together. Someone's got to be answering all the phone calls. And, and, you know, there's a lot of, you know, you're, you're dealing with agents and you have a lot of people involved in a record label. And suddenly it's like, well, that's not really the way to do a side project. It's all or nothing. So for us, it was like, let's find some people that are a little bit more in line and online with a vision that we can go figure out what it is together and see what happens. And so that's where we have ended up now four years later. Well, where did, where did you find Amber? In Nashville. Um, there's a guy in, in town named Grimey. He, well, he's got a record store called Grimey. Uh, a great place. Runs the basement in the basement East. And I was, um, I think it was just like last year I was doing a, a last waltz gig over at the basement East. And I was in there a few months before our, few weeks ahead of time i don't know i walked i was there to do something talk talk about something and i just said off the top of my head i said hey man you know any singers and he said what are you looking for dude girl i said i don't know just someone that can sing because we weren't necessarily committed to replacing uh joan with a woman you know we did have songs that work well as a duet but we were wide open as to what that might mean and how we could retool those songs lyrically if need be um 
and uh, and he said, well, I, I there's a, there's a girl that sings downtown on Thursday nights on a cover band, and she's incredible. And and you know we just well sure let's go check her out. But I had no idea what to expect. And we walked into a bar, and she sang two songs, and we just looked at each other like, why isn't she already somewhere huge? You know, <laughs> like, you just don't find people like that. And then she picked up a sax and played a sax solo, and we were just dying. We were like, well, what is happening here? And um, and literally, we spoke to her that night, and then she came over and hung out with me, Nick, and Ed. And and all, and we just pretty shortly thereafter, we were off and running. Now, um, you're a few gigs into the uh, into the tour. How's it been going so far? Great. Really good. Um, and it's, you know, it's the first run of dates with this new band and, um, you know, un- not unlike the first round of dates with the first trigger hippie. I mean, well, this is all about getting promoters to see the band getting, you know, we know there's going to be a few people at these gigs, um, you know, that, that, that are curious. And then for the most part, it's just going to be some people that already really dig the record. Um, and and this is a this is you know all all early tours are test runs for when you can get to a place where you can put together something a lot more comprehensive. So it's been, you know, like my point is if you when you go out for a round of dates like this, you have a reason to do it beyond just you want to play live shows. We're trying to plant seeds with not just fans, but with with people throughout the industry to just have awareness of the band. Like okay, there's a there's a new trigger hippie, and here it is. And so on that across those lines it's been really really successful and then along the way oh the shows have been great and the people that are there really dig it too so we're and it's a really fun band to play in i mean it truly is enjoyable on stage um it's just the vibe of this group of people is uh it's it's very it's very much a communal thing and and it's it's you know it's really it satisfies every musical itch i have well steve the book hard to handle has been out i think almost two months now or close to it uh-huh. Um, the response has been overwhelming and I know amongst the Crows community, it's required reading. I think I knocked it out in under 48 hours. And what is, what are kind of your overall thoughts on, on how it's been perceived? And, uh, have you gotten any, a lot of negative comments about it? I can't imagine you would, but you know, the black Crows community, we can be a self-loathing bunch. <laughs> <laughs> well, that would stand to reason. I mean, that's a reflection of the band. So, um, um, I, I mean, as far as like reviews and, and, and the reception or, or, you know, the, the way the book's been received, um, by people outside the black coast community is pretty, what I'm, what I've seen is pretty uniformly really positive. I think that, I mean, for, for black coast fans, and I, and I will say off the jump, I did not write the book for black coast fans. I wrote the book for me and I, could you know i saw it as a great story and it happens to all be true but it's a it's a you know it's my story and it's i'm happy to have answered questions or to given black coast fans something but when i say i didn't write it for them i mean i didn't write it exclusively for them right. i i think it reads well if you don't know anything about the band and that was also very much i mean that's what i would wanted to accomplish you know what i mean i could i could just have a blog if i wanted it to just satisfy a Q&A for Black Crows fans. And, and like I said, I'll answer any question. I'm happy to do it, but that wasn't the point of the book. Um, so, but, but within the Black Crows fan, you know, and I have friends who are, you know, that I've met, you know, I've made a few friends over the years that I've met because they were fans and then we actually got to know each other. And, you know, I, I, I've, I've heard of 
various, you know, reactions from people. But it's all, you know, the, the reactions to the book are the way I've always said reactions to the live gigs are. Um, if you buy the ticket and you see the show, your opinion of that show is right. I might, my opinion might be different, but it doesn't mean I'm right. You know, I mean, I have quite famously said things about certain live shows in the past and, and people are like, what are you talking about? That show was great. And my answer is always, Oh, cool. Good. <laughs> you're, you know, you're right. If you buy the ticket, your opinion is right. And I was on stage. So my opinion to me is right. I've never tried to separate what the experience for me as, as the, uh, as a member of the band was from, the production of a show or an album. I, I don't think my opinion is very interesting if I try to get separation and look back. I mean, I, you know, every, that's what everyone else does. Why, why go that route? So, um, but the most important reaction, really the one that is significant to me is from, um, well, from other members of the band, from members of the crew, and I mean, shockingly to me, you know, people from record companies over the years, radio program directors, and um, I, I, I've gotten messages from dozens of people that were very, very directly involved in our circle stuff all the way out to people on the periphery of the Black Crows career who've gotten in touch with me to say that the book gave them a great sense of closure and that they're very appreciative. And that is that's been the biggest surprise. I'd never in a million years would have expected that. I just didn't think about that in those terms. And so, you know, and that's everybody from, from Pete Angelus to Mark Botting to guys who were guitar techs on the shake your moneymaker tour and everyone in between people calling with some really, really heartfelt and very deep thoughts. And a lot of people telling me stories they didn't feel comfortable sharing until now. Hmm. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of confusion and bewilderment and and a lot of unresolved, you know, dark darkness around people who left the world of the Black Crows over the years. And the book gave them all a chance to feel better about it. So so that's phenomenally rewarding and completely unexpected. You mentioned a, uh, you know, a sense of closure. I had, I had read um, that your biggest you had expressed that the biggest disappointment you experienced with the way the Black Crows kind of ended was that you didn't have a a, a, a a true goodbye to the to the longtime fans. Is this does the book kind of in a way substitute for that and provide fans with that kind of closure, do you think? Well, I, I, I certainly hope so. I mean, I know there was a thing written where it said, you know, this was my farewell tour. I, I didn't write that. I didn't think of it in those terms. I do think that um, had the, you know, I've been asked this point blank. Would you have written a book if the tour, if the 25th anniversary tour had happened? And I can say, honestly, I, I don't think so. Maybe. I mean, who knows? But but it would have ended in a very different way. I mean, the reality of what the, the life in the band was would have wouldn't have changed. And that 25th anniversary tour wouldn't have been some panacea that would have corrected all the past ills or anything like that. But but as a as a narrative and as a story on a band, it would have at least ended. I wanted to be able to say thanks to our fans. I also wanted a chance to say thanks to the other guys in the band. I mean, to Chris and Rich and to Pete and everybody. And I wanted them to be able to thank me. I wanted everybody to stand there and go, okay, this has been a shit show. But look at look, but at least we picked the fucking tire up, put it back on the car and crossed the finish line. You know, that that was all that was left at that point. So, you know, that was a that was something that meant a lot to me. And again, not because it would have fixed everything, but at least it wouldn't have been what it 
what it became, which was the most embarrassing and, and frankly disgusting way a band could ever possibly end. Well, Steve, what we thought we would, would do is, um, you know, obviously this is a, a black crows podcast and Ian and I are huge fans of the band and we've kind of reached out to some people, other fans and maybe have them send some questions in. Um, and if you, you can go as long as you short as you want to on these answers, that makes no difference to us. But sure. One of the first ones that people got, are you still part of, I guess what you would call black crows incorporated? Are you still business partners with Chris and rich? Um, that is a, well, uh, Simply, the shortest answer to that question is no. Okay. Uh, um, there, there, there are a lot of. I mean, it, it, and I'm not going to go into this because, for more than anything else, it's just boring. There's a lot of, <laughs> there's a lot of tentacles to all of this. So, in terms of can they go be the Black Crows without me, the answer is yes. Okay. Because I think that's where that stems from. Is is this okay for them to go do this tour next year? And and the answer is yeah. They have every legal right to do that. Okay. All right. This is, this is one that I've always wanted to ask you. Um, you talk about in the book that when Mark Ford got in the studio, I think you even said like in like 17 seconds or something like that, you realized how great of a fit he was and how much he and Ed elevated the band. Uh, from a personal note, my favorite album of all time is Southern Harmony. And I, I, I really believe it should be mentioned with Exile on Main Street, Dark Side of the Moon, Damn the Torpedoes, all those great albums. When you walk out of the studio and y'all have that on tape, do you realize what you've just done? I mean, like, do you have a sense of just how great that is? Well, yeah, but not, I, I mean, only in terms of um, what it meant to us and what it was like in that room. I mean, that, you know, for all of the talk over the years about um, not caring if something sells or not, not caring if people get it or not a lot of that narrative was, was 100% false and 180 degrees from the truth. However, Southern harmony was one of those situations where, um, and, and I, I'm not saying about myself, I wasn't the one spinning that narrative, but, but Southern harmony was one time when I think everybody, again, we didn't know what that record would sound like 20, uh, what seven years later, mm -hmm. but we knew that we had just, we just laid down a bunch of tracks. No one else on the planet could do like that to me, my, my greatest frustrations always within the black crows, um, happened to coincide with, with, with our commercial success. But, uh, and I say this very sincerely, we were one of those bands who, when we were all aligned and when we were all working to our strengths and we were all doing what we were best at. And when we all agreed on what we wanted to do and did it together, the whole world lined up to see and hear that band. And when we were at each other's throats and when, when the, 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 when the strengths of the band were ignored to follow a, a vision that made no sense, frankly. And when there was, there was tremendous dissatisfaction with, with five members of the band over what Chris was trying to get the band to do. I think that followed suit too. My frustrations we're, we're literally never about uh, record sales and ticket sales. It was about what this tiny group of people that were in a little insular submarine world were doing to each other and how we were fucking that up the whole time. So all that to say, I drove home from the studio for, you know, literally a week every night from Southern Tracks in late 1991 going, God damn, this is awesome. This is exactly what a band is supposed to feel like. And 
and you know the the brothers punching each other and calling me names and me sarcastically cutting them down and all the shit that was happening it was meaningless it was just that's normal band stuff it hadn't gotten to the point where it became um entirely uh you know you know the holes in the road weren't keeping the car from rolling i guess you know like southern harmony was was that was a ferocious band proving to ourselves that we had earned what shake your moneymaker gave us like we weren't as good as shake your moneymaker and we had to go out and become that kind of band and then we did and as much as I give Mark Ford tremendous credit, the band that he joined was a great rock and roll band already. And, and so that's what I was more aware of. I knew Mark was great and it thrilled me to no end, but the band that made shake your moneymaker could have never in a billion years made Southern harmony, um, in 1989. And so to go in there in 91 and knock that record out, it was just like this giant affirmation to the four of us that made that first record that, Hey, we just turned into that thing. We always wanted to be with regard to the, uh, to the book. I noticed that the bulk of the material in the book kind of carries through about 2005, 2006. And then the, the period following that, um, isn't addressed uh, as uh, vigorously. Uh, was right. that like a, a time and space decision just, you know, for the, for the book's sake or no, I, I, I knew before I started writing, it would probably go that way. And for a couple of reasons, one, my emotional investment in the band after 2006 was nothing like it had been up until that point. And, and then the result was that, um, I just wasn't as concerned with how everything that was happening was impacting the band. I mean, in the nineties, I was so aware of everything good and bad and in, in between and how it was impact. I saw the band in, in a grand scope. And I was always looking at the narrative in real time. And well, how does this look 10 years now, you know, 10 years from now, what will we think about what we're doing right now? Because I did see it as a 30 or 40 year band. I, I saw, I see no reason to be in a band unless you're going to really be one of those bands because what it takes to get any amount of success by the time you get there, if you're not willing to just give everything you have to maintain it, you're what I don't, I don't understand why you'd put yourself through that. If you're not in it for the long haul. So by the, after 2006, it was so obvious that we were just not going to be able to, you know, we were just where we were. And I think I said that in the book, it was a really great group. And we had nights where I, I, I mean, I still loved playing. I liked the Black Crows music and I like War Paint. And I like some of what's on Before the Frost. You know, those records have some good stuff to me. They also have some of the worst stuff we ever recorded to me. And <laughs> You know, it's just what it is. You know, it's like, I, you know, I, I it's like, um, you know, I, I did everything. I, I, I thought I played great on those records because it was important to, you know what I mean? Like, as, as always, I, you know, people have talked about some of the drum tracks on a few of those songs. Like, that's some really amazing stuff. And I'm like, yeah, trust me. I, I, I love songs where I don't have to do anything. I like the song to be great, <laughs> you know. But, but no, so I like some of those moments, but it was in comparison to what the band had been from 91 to 96 and 97 into 97, there's no, there is no comparison to me. It's, it was a, it was just a wandering, you know, occasionally stumbling into some really high points, always a good rock and roll band. I mean, in 2010, we had nights where we were as good a band as you could see. I don't think there's any question about that. And I loved Luther's playing and I loved Adam's playing initially until Chris told him to go play, outer space shit all the time and stop trying to sound like Ed. 
But when Adam first came in, he was trying to be Ed and, and, and in his own way. And, and it was pretty fantastic. And so we had, we had great moments. I've, I, I'm never not in a good mood if I'm on stage playing with Sven Pippian holding a bass. So, you know, all that to say, that was always great. You know, it was always in the grand scheme things. You know, like we all have people, you know, people die. People get sick. You know, a rock band being as great as it once was, you have to maintain some perspective on that. So, you know, but but those days weren't, to me, really worthy of a whole i mean I'm, I'm happy to talk about it and answer questions but in the book that wasn't really the black crows that that meant the world to me well steve you talk about in the book about you kind of preferred the amork or bus <coughs> tour in that era versus 96 97 which uh you know a lot of uh, amorkins that's kind of the, the holy grail time but this may be a very dumb question if it is forgive me but i'm not a musician <laughs> when you're a drummer and y'all were doing all of those playing all those jams does that uh-huh. Does that make you a nervous wreck? Because you're essentially directing all the traffic. No, no. I mean, here's the thing. I, I like playing like that. I, 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 I've liked a lot of what we did. And in the moment, you know, a lot of those things were fantastic. Um, you know, there, it, we just, it just hit a wall by the end of 96 and into 97. And, and that's the thing. When you're in the band, it all swirls. You can't separate. Are we, you know, like a little thing. And, and we played a place called the boathouse in Norfolk in 1990, 90. And then again, I think in 91, like the end of 1990, we played a club in Norfolk called the boathouse. And it was our second or third time playing it that year. And then at some point, I think it was Chris said, we were like at the boathouse and, and got a phone call like, Hey, the record's about to go platinum. You know, we were like, Holy shit. And and amongst and in the conversation, like Chris made a joke, like, hey, at least at least we'll never have to play the boathouse again. And it's not a knock on the boathouse itself. But the idea was, hey, we're out of these clubs. And everybody laughed and it was nothing. Well, in the fall of 96, we're at the boathouse again. And we walked in and me and Chris and Ray, all three of us immediately looked at each other and remembered that line from five years earlier. And it was like, oh, fuck, <laughs> you know, <laughs> now, now we didn't go out and have a bad show, but, you know, you can't avoid, you can't separate those things. And, you know, there was always such a black and white narrative around the band, which is we don't care or we care. And we, it, it, that's it's insane. Everybody's aware of everything. And we were always aware of or at least everybody's aware of when a crowd is bored. Everyone's aware of when a crowd is jacked up. Everyone's aware of when the house is half full. The difference is some people d- d- pretend they're not aware of it. And then when they're aware of it and they're really upset by it, their reaction is to say, I don't care. So it's not honest. And so it's that lack of honesty that that fueled so much of the anger and angst within that band. And so all of these things that were happening in 96 and 97 and, you know, for the first time in our career, promoters who were very friendly with and guys who've been backing us for years are saying, hey, guys, this is trending really poorly. And there's a history. Promoters, they have, they look at things in black and white. Now, you can say, oh, they're just thinking about money. But no, promoters are in it for the long haul. And they can talk to a band that they've worked with and go, hey, guys, um, this is going in a weird way. Just a heads up, this is going away. And when things go away, they go away really fast and with a great amount of, you know, when gravity starts to pull you back, it gets really powerful and it's, it's really important that we think about what you're doing and try to stop this. 
Now, these are not linear conversations backstage. These are conversations promoters are having with Pete and that he's bringing to us and that we, because we were a stupid rock and roll band, said we don't care. Well, we all cared a lot. And so all of those things, I'm only going into all this shit to try to say, again, that's fueling all of the mood on stage. And then more importantly than any of that is we were going in directions that Chris wanted to go that no one else in the band thought was a great idea. We could do it. And the fact that people love a lot of those shows, to me, is a testament to how great everybody in the band was. Because we were all doing something we didn't innately love and want to do. But we still delivered. And so what, so the, 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 the follow-up to that thought is, well, goddamn, what could we have done if everybody had been invigorated and inspired and on the same page again like we were in 92 and 93 and 94 and 95? That would have been exhilarating. And then, oddly enough, I think when we made the record called Band... That is exactly what happened. Everybody showed up when I least expected it and got focused for a quick week in Atlanta. And we made a record that that short of a couple of the songs was was my favorite tracks we ever recorded. They were just live. That was the sound of a band that had been through an absolute war and somehow still was standing. And we had one last giant swing and we fucking connected with it. And And then, of course, the whole thing unraveled with when we lost Johnny and Mark, but you know, so I could say in the spring of 97, I could even tell myself, okay, it was all worth it because look what we just recorded. But then that was, but then by the summer that, that never happened again, that was over. Now you had, you had mentioned in the, in the book that um, Rich had, uh, you know, pretty much taken over uh, the bass playing uh, on three snakes. Yeah. So when it came time for, for the band, was was Johnny? Is that Johnny playing on there? Or did Richard oh yeah, that? yeah. No, that's the, that's live. The ba- band is live. That's everybody playing. A- absolutely. And I think it's Johnny's best. But be- I think it's the band's. It's weird. Southern Harmony is my favorite Black Crows album too. But but band is because of everything we'd been through, with the context of where we were and what we were looking at. Down, you know what we were staring at, which was nothing but uncertainty moving forward. To put that album together was extraordinary, and so, and it spoke to again, like I said, it spoke to the strengths. That's everybody doing what they do best. That's my best drumming. That's Johnny's best bass playing. That's 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 Mark and Rich connected and playing together live at do, both doing what they do best. And Chris sang it really well and. Lyrically, he connected every dot in a way he he was starting to lose sight of how to do or didn't have the the energy to do it correctly. He just, you know, his lyrics got more and more detached from what he was really thinking and feeling. And and he pulled it all together for that. And that that was a real that was a real high note for all of those reasons. Steve, more so than any other band I can think of, the Black Crows left more good material in the vault than just about anybody. Yeah. And in particular, I want to ask you about a few songs that got left off of By Your Side. In particular, uh, Grows a Rose, uh, the Peace Anyway version um, from that uh, time, and then You Don't Have to Go and It Must Be Over. How did how did those songs get left off that album? Because those are all really good songs. There Grows a Rose was originally on the record. It was a 10-song album with There Grows a Rose when we turned it in. And then, you know, the people at Columbia were like, yeah, we don't hear... I don't know if it was they don't hear a single, but they were just thinking there was something missing. And, and I, you know, I don't remember the like who 
or what, but I know that we had had a couple new songs and the idea was, and this is a standard thing with every record. It's like you turn a record in label says, okay, cool. And then a month later, it's still like, you sure you don't have anything else? I mean, <laughs> you know, that's famously dancing in the dark, you know, Springsteen turned in 70 songs and Columbia went, that's awesome. It's great. But do you have one more? And he went and wrote that song cause he was so pissed. And of course it's the, <laughs> it's the lead single for the album. You know what I mean? Like, that's as standard as it gets. So we went back, we went out and did some dates in the summer of 98. And then we took a break. We did the first show enough shows. And then we had go tell the congregation and diamond ring. So we went in and tracked those. And I think more just because they were fresh and new and exciting. It was decided to put both those on and replace their grows a rose, which I, and I raised my flag as hard as I could saying, this is fucking insane. I thought their grows a rose should have been the single. Because it sounded like it sounded, it sounded as much like rock radio in 1998 as anything else was going to at the time. You know, I thought it could have made sense. You're, we're putting out a single. It's, let's not pretend we're not going to try to get back in the game when Columbia is holding a gun to our head. So um, let's put out that. It, sound, it doesn't sound like the Black Crows. That seemed to be kind of important to me. And then, of course, it was like, no, we need to sound as much like the Black Crows as we can. And that was a version of the Black Crows that didn't exist anymore. Well, Steve, do you think we will ever get a true box set where everything is just that's been recorded is put out, is put out there? I know Ian and I've talked. I'd pay five or six hundred bucks for it. Um, you know, well, you'd have to. That's I, I can't imagine it. And the, I mean, I mean, maybe so. Who knows? That That's something that, you know, that that takes if you want to do it right, it takes a whole lot of effort a lot of energy and you have to have a reverence and respect for your own catalog and your own fans to do that. Right. So my answer is I wouldn't hold my breath. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Now, Steve, you had mentioned, uh, you know, if I wanted to circle back to something you said before that, you know, you enjoyed yourself pretty much throughout, you know, up until 2010. So I'm guessing that the, the 2013 tour maybe wasn't, uh, wasn't your thing. No, it was fine. It, it was perfectly fine. I was glad to do it. I was surprised when it came together. I was surprised in two, th- you know, two different times. I went to see Chris play as a solo artist, and he said, he, "What do you think about the Crows?" And both times I was like, "What?" <laughs> like that happened in 2004, and it happened in 2012. And both times I said the exact same thing, which is funny. There's so many hamster wheel experiences in that band. So many. It, all the, all the Black Crows ever did was repeat their own history, and that's another <laughs> example of that. Or I was like, you're really happy right now. Why do you want to do the Black Crows? Um, which isn't to say I didn't want to necessarily, but it's just a, it's a, it was, I was surprised. So those shows were fine. I mean, I wouldn't have, uh, I was disappointed when Luther decided not to do it, but I understood, you know, I mean, it made sense. Uh, it was the 2010 tour ended with such acrimony. And I mean, I can't really, you know, in fact, I didn't have the energy to write all about that. I didn't think it was that it, it was just the same stories, but re- with different names, you know, like that whole second act for the band, as far as what it was like in the band, if anything was darker and worse um, with the, with the attitude, with the, the brothers at each other. Um, it was pretty it's spectacular, actually, like <laughs> how much negativity can be thrown around one bus in one day. Um and everybody just put their head down and just got the gigs done. And, you know, when 2010 ended, I, uh, I absolutely would have not bet on the Black Crows ever coming back. I mean, it was just so 
it, it was just so beyond toxic. I don't know what the word is for that, the mood inside that band at that time. All that said, 2013 was a sign that maybe we could at least understand what we had done that mattered. Stop thinking so much about, and, and this is mostly for the brothers, get out of your own way. The Black Crows is bigger than the two of you. Our music is bigger than the two of you. And there's a lot of people that love this music. Why can't we go out and play music and tour and find just enough common ground to do that? And everybody can, you know, fuck, man, everybody can make a living. We can have a, 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 a schedule that makes sense. We don't have to kill ourselves. And it can give everybody the freedom to go do their other musical projects all they want. It's not rocket science. It's very simple. You can you can go make a living playing music. And if that's automatically something that you have a problem with, well, you got a problem. I mean, it's it's like for next year. They're going to go out and tour. And I've said this forever. I'm going to say it now. If you're in your 50s and you can make a living playing music, then great. Go go for it. Um, you know, there's there's a you know, that's a strange way to go about it, especially with a band like the Black Crows and a false narrative that was spun for so long about what the band means and why it, it, it is what it is. But 2013 for me was OK. Well, I mean, you know, this is a test run for 2015 and there is a goal and a point to 2015. And that did matter to me. So all that to say, I had a great time in 2013. I mean, uh, there was no drama for most of the tour. The, 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 we were, it was easy going. When that tour started, It was, I think everybody was getting along, and the general mood was as light as it had ever been in the band's history. So, you know, as always, when you least expect it, things would either turn up or turn down. Steve, when you sit back and think about <clears throat> what this band has meant to so many people, I, I, I met Chris a couple years ago, and I'll tell you the same thing I told him. Your music has made the good times better and the bad times not so bad. Um, right. And it has really affected a lot of people. I know for a fact, uh, last night you met our friend uh, after the show, Steve Gleason. He was the guy that said he'd seen you 150 times. Um, oh, yeah. What does what does that mean mean to you when you hear people say stuff like that? You know, like I've, I've taken vacations and followed you all around the country. I mean, to me, I know it would go to my head. <laughs> I, I can tell you, honestly, it's the exact opposite. It just it blows me away. And I feel silly saying thank you because there's no way I could ever fully say thank you to someone who's seen the band 150 times for somebody to take a vacation. And, you know, I, anybody that gets to a gig has done something to get there. You know, I mean, right. when you're a young kid, you know, I used to go see bands in, in high school and college and, uh, you know, yeah, you'll run through a brick wall to see your favorite band. You don't care. Once people start getting to a certain age, and have responsibilities. I don't take any of that for granted. I think it's incredible that people get out to more than three shows on a tour to see the same band. Once they have families, once they have actual jobs and careers, it's, it's, I mean, it's like beyond humbling. It's just, all I say is thank you so much. And I really do put that into a, a those are very real terms to me. Like, like it's, it's the support of fans like that that enabled the black crows to, you know, to exist. I mean, you know, the people that all bought shake your moneymaker in 1991, all bought, you know, Pearl jam in 1992. And then they all bought Dave Matthews in 1994. It's the people that came to the shows repeatedly over and over and over that, that made the band viable, that gave us all a, a not just a career, but in, in these terms, I do think of it in financial terms. They gave us a living. 
I mean, I have a house and put my kids through a great school because of people like that. That's I'm forever appreciative. And and I I I can't say enough about what that means that those people changed my life. Right. We would have been making music, whether anybody, you know, we were we were a band when no one cared. Mr. Crow's Garden used to play to nobody. And I was having the best time I'd ever had in my life. So I don't owe the Black Crows shit, but I owe I owe the people that supported the Black Crows for the rest of my life. All right, Steve, I've got one more random question for you before I throw it back to Ian. You talk of in the book, and I've heard you mention this before. I, I currently live in Jackson, Mississippi, and you've talked about a gig you guys did at a See, place. Because I was hearing, I was hearing Vermont in your accent. <laughs> That's Ian. He's he's new, he's he's up there in the Northeast. Yeah, um, I know. You, you talked about um, uh, that show. At, I believe I believe it's called WC Don's or something like it. It's the first time you guys yeah. played Shake Your Money Maker, and people started slow dancing to it. First time we played, she talks to angels. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, she talks to angels. Yeah. Oh yeah, it was a Saturday night, and we were opening for Will and the Bushmen, and and we I, there's a photo. I have a photo of the band playing that song for the first time that my friend took, who was at the show. And when I when she heard I was writing the book, she sent it to me and said, "I've waited 30 years to show you this picture because." And I remembered this. We played that song at Soundcheck, and she goes, "Oh my God, I finally like one of your songs." <laughs> And I was like, hey, thanks. Gee, Elizabeth, that's great. And she laughed, but she she took a picture of us playing it. And she said, I'm always going to be able to say there's a photo of the first time you guys ever played that song. Wow. And I was like, damn, good call, kid. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Being that uh, David and I are so close to the uh, to the members of the fan base, you know, we, we get involved in a lot of these uh, Internet discussions, as you can imagine how those go sometimes. But um, I was hoping to get your opinion on some of the songs in the Crows catalog. Sure, seem to be more the more divisive songs uh, amongst <laughs> okay. the fans. So uh, the first one I have is "Diamond Ring." I love it. You know, we would have never written a song like "Hard to Handle," you know, but we could play the shit out of it. I mean, <laughs> "Diamond Ring" sounds like a soul song. It sounds like it could be an Al Green tune, and you picture someone, you picture a different artist singing that very earnestly and it'd be like man that's bad and that's one of those songs where like well why can't we write a song like that we we play those kind of songs all the time when other people write them and so i love it for what the point was and i also think it was i the baseline kills me that was i i just we tracked it and i was listening i was just looking at sven going god this guy doesn't even have uh, he's just fucking ridiculous it's just so smooth and it flows. It's a, I hate talking about parts and music because it gets too clunky and sounds stupid and trite. But that bass line absolutely blew me away. I mean, I agree. I, I thought it was always thought it was a fantastic song. But whenever anybody mentions, oh, yeah, I would take this B-side and swap it out. For, it's always Diamond Ring that, that uh, gets the axe. I never understood that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's hokey as shit, you know. I, mean, I get it. <laughs> But a lot of but a lot of great music is hokey. You know, we, the Black Crows don't do earnest very well. You know, we're not we were never an earnest bunch, and for sure as shit, Chris wasn't. <laughs> Another track that uh, always seems to divide people. It's actually one I've I've heard Rich uh, mention that he couldn't uh, he he didn't like very much was uh, from Cabin Fever uh, sessions. It was uh, I ain't hiding. <laughs> I was gonna say throw throw a dart, take your pick. Um. <laughs> um 
I ain't hiding was um, my opinion at the time was it's either not on the album or it's the first single. Nothing in between because <laughs> it's such a what the fuck is this that you need to run with it. Because, you know, what's the point of a single? It's to get attention to the album. I mean, everyone overthinks this shit. If you're putting out a single, you're saying you're waving a flag in the air and going, look over here. Look what we built. You know, that's the point of a single. And so if you're going to put out a single, put that thing out. If nothing else, everybody would go, what the fuck are they doing? Um, (laughs) But that's that's the pragmatic side of my brain. I mean, when Chris was when he you know, he, he wrote that. And when he was showing everybody what he wanted and kind of guiding the band through it, we were all looking at each other going, is it time for the lobotomy? I mean, is this, <laughs> are we, is this it? But, but again, that said, it was awesome to play it because just the faces on everyone in that barn when we were playing, it was worth its weight in gold. You know, like everyone's looking at us like, what the fuck are you guys doing? And the whole question of, is it real? Is it a joke? Is this supposed to be funny? I mean, I'm, I'm always up for stuff like that. So, you know, I, I don't, I can't say I like the song, but the process, it was an interesting thing to go through. And it was funny to, to record it in that setting of all places. You know, it was classic, you know, it was a legitimate, you know, standard black crows. What the fuck are they thinking? Uh, was the uh, the same uh, mindset kind of applied to uh, Lickin' from Lions? Because that's another one. I liked Lickin'. I didn't like the lyric, but I thought that the song could have been pretty badass. I think yeah. I, I think Lions had a lot of great... Um, I liked all of Rich's ideas around that time. I just thought he was... He had hit a new level, of, especially after By Your Side was a bit of a retrograde. You know, Lions was just a whole new direction with just, just his ideas... The shit he would play in rehearsal just by himself, you know, that I would then go jump on a drum kit and we would just play in a circle together. I was like, oh, man, he's really inspired right now. That's a great um, that's a great album. And I and well, see, but then I don't think that we finished a lot of those songs. I think that the building blocks were there. I think we had some really, really great. You know, that's an 80 yard album in a 100 yard world to me. But that's again, that's to me. If you think it's a great album, then by God, turn it on and listen to it. That's awesome. Do you think that um, that Rich's playing at, at that time was inspired by the run you had just done with Jimmy Page? Oh, uh, yeah, of course it was. I mean, it, you, just because it would, you, you can't help it, you know. I mean, so was mine. So was every, every, you know, you just you're just doing something. And for Rich, too. I mean, the um, I, I would imagine that playing those shows with Jimmy, he was essentially playing rhythm. And locking in and playing parts. He was playing specific parts. The three guitarists had worked that out. Like, okay, there's six tracks on the album version of this song. I'll do this one, you do that one, and you do that one, and that's how we'll do it. So, and Rich is never one to, he, he could never play the same thing twice. And so he was doing that a lot on that tour. And I think that it was a, it was a good result. I think when he was back to just doing his own thing, he had a lot more flourish in his playing. Because he was just happy to be out of the cage. <laughs> if you had to pick one track that you felt best represented the the Black Crows at their absolute full strength, which which track would you would you pick? Um, I mean, I, there's a million. You know, there's it's. Well, I'll just be a. I, I guess. Uh, oh, fuck, I don't know. I guess my morning song would be pretty pretty much. You know that 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 to me is the that's the first that's the first time that we. Southern Harmony is, you know, Shake Your Money Maker is us trying to be something. And Southern Harmony is us being something. But then actually 
you know, bewildered and exit, um, that we wrote on the tour for Southern harmony and fear years. And then a few of those tunes, curse diamond stuff that we were writing in 92 and 93 and arranging and starting to play live. I think that was the most authentic black crows music ever. And most of it, as you alluded to was never even ultimately released on albums. Um, but, but, if for stuff that's on an album, I guess my morning song, or maybe, um, maybe Curse Diamond. Even have you heard any of the riffs and and bits of music that Jimmy Page had planned if he was going to do the the record with you guys? No. Okay. All right. The last one. Uh, it's uh, we got to ask it, or people are going to kill us. It's the worst kept secret in music that probably we're recording this on Saturday. It looks like on Monday there's going to be an announcement of a Shake Your Money Maker. Uh, tour and uh, no, there's there's already signs up in New York announcing dates. Oh yeah, that's, uh, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, we saw those this this morning. Um, yeah, because oh, by the way, um, th- this is not a part of my life, but that doesn't stop a million people I know from texting me shit like that every time <laughs> it happens. I oh. I'm not gonna try to present to you that I don't know what's happening. I mean, shit, nobody will leave me alone about it. That must be great. <laughs> well, just just real quick, your thoughts on it? Um, <laughs> I mean. I mean that when I say it's got nothing to do with me on on really any level other than other people want to know my thoughts. So um, it's probably not unlike what a lot of people who have followed the band for years think, which is, you know, there was you can judge someone by what they say, uh, but it's far more uh, important to judge people by their actions. You know, people say anything. And I think that, you know, the way the band ended in 2014, which is Chris demanding all the money from me and most of the money from Rich, that's true. That actually happened. And that followed 20 years of him telling everyone that everyone else cared about money and that he doesn't. And, uh, you know, the purity test that he puts other people through, you know, is is his, his long just been I don't want to get too deep into this, but it's a culture like that band. When you when you have a culture that's got addiction and codependency and and betrayal and loyalty and blind loyalty, when you have all these elements, you end up in a culture of secrecy and shame and embarrassment. And there's so much of that throughout the Black Crows. Now, again, the music's the music. And somehow those damaged people, myself included, occasionally made tremendous rock and roll music. And that doesn't take anything away from that. And so if people want to go hear Shake Your Moneymaker in its entirety, played by men in their 50s, then by all means, go see it. You know, I, I'm it's still my music. I'm not going to play it ever again. But that's still my music as much as it's anybody else's music. And so I'm, I'm thrilled if people love the Black Crows music. And if they want to go see a version of the Black Crows or if they want to go see, you know, Chris and Rich calling themselves the black crows with another band they have the right to do that and and i i see that it's to me it's like you know who's in foreigner i don't know but if you <laughs> want to hear that music go see it but but i but i can't say that it isn't it's not sad that that a band like the black crows who by their by our second album had put ourselves in position to be in control of our own fate and destiny for the rest of our lives you know, we went from being a band that discussed, let's buy a farm and build a studio and we'll have our own world outside of Atlanta. Let's buy a place over near Athens where the land's cheap and we'll build a studio and we'll have a compound 
and we can make music there forever. And we'll do the, you know, for a band that went from there to the 30th anniversary, let's hear an album start to finish, including songs these guys haven't played in 20 years. That's sad. That's what that is to me. It's perfectly fine if they want to. I mean, they have every right to do it. And again, I don't begrudge anybody that goes to see it, but it's sad. It's always going to be sad. I mean, and I've said this a lot, but it's true. I, my, there's no anger in my book. And I know that because there has been a lot of anger in the past. And I know the difference. <laughs> well, um, but there's always sadness. And But this is also exactly how it's supposed to go. Because this is just, this is just, this is their destiny to do what they're doing right now. Despite the better efforts of myself and a lot of other equally, if not more capable people to provide guidance and leadership and true passion and true talent. And it still wasn't enough to keep them from destroying the entire thing. So, but that's the band. That's not the music. The music is eternal. Well, Steve, uh, we're going to forever be grateful for you agreeing to do this. Uh, it just, it, it meant, meant a lot to us. We've always, you were our first official member of the Crows that we wanted to have um, on here. And we're so happy with the, the radio show, the book, Trigger Hippie, uh, just seems like things are going great for you. And we just really, really appreciate you taking the time to come on. Absolutely. <laughs> I'm happy to. So this podcast is specifically about the black crows. Yes. Yes. Like, we have state of we're the first ones. <laughs> first ones. Uh, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's growing quick. We've, you know, we have our downloads go up every week and, um, like I said, we, we can't thank you enough for coming on. And if you'll hold on just one second, we're going to sign off and, uh, get some info from you. So, uh, thanks again to Steve Gorman, uh, here to play us out. Uh, my song. Well, hold, on, be- hold on, hold yeah. on, hold on. Let me, I, I do want to say one thing though, yeah. because and I, I do mean this, like, like the fact that you guys are doing this, it speaks to kind of what I just said, which is that that music really is eternal and it means that much to people. And when you asked about your friend who I met last night, you know, this is another example of that. Like, honestly, I, I just want to say thank you to both of you, because if that, you know, knowing that this stuff means so much, I mean, I assume you're both adults and I assume you have other things you could be doing with your time. So this is clearly a passion project. And Absolutely. that means the that means the absolute world to me and your support of Trigger Hippie and saying nice things about Trigger Hippie and, and all of this is not it's not unnoted. So thank you both very much. Man, you you are more than welcome, Steve. And anytime yes. you want to come on for any any reason, you just you have our info. You just hit us up, and we'll we'll have you on. But to play us out, my song of the year off the new Trigger Hippie album, it's Born to Be Blue. Stay tall, everybody.
Cool. 